0: From WNET in New York, this is WNET Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening here and help you get to know the people who create our programs. Hi, I'm Tom Stewart. Scott Davis is the executive producer of PBS NewsHour Weekend. With a long career in television journalism, much of it here at WNET, and such programs as Need to Know, Wide Angle, and now with Bill Moyers, he's been with PBS NewsHour Weekend since the beginning, and about a year ago became its executive producer. Scott, welcome to WNET Up Next.
1: Nice to finally be here.
0: You know, it occurred to me that you have to always be able to turn on a dime in what you do. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about... The Brexit vote, mm-hmm. uh, Orlando, mm-hmm. uh, Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. Uh, I literally saw you running down the hall the morning after the Brexit vote. I was Did I look recalled. Scared? No, no, but you looked no, okay. you looked energized and like, uh oh, we've got we've got stuff to as do. Long as I was
1: run, running toward the control room or an edit room. That's fine. Not, not but what the do these
0: challenges mean for you and and your staff?
1: Well, uh, I could speak for the staff first or speak about the staff first. They are really the best in the business. Um, We have people on staff who can do a little bit of everything and and they they do it all very well. Mm -hmm. The staff, they're made up of people who can shoot and write and produce and edit and in many cases also be on camera. Um, That's sort of part of their job. The other part of their job is on the weekends to account for day of and breaking news. Mm -hmm. And so they write uh, as the news changes, they monitor news stories as they develop. Uh, they inform our anchors about good questions and good guests. They help book those guests. So they sort of do it all. It's really hard to find people who can do all of those things mm-hmm. and do them well. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're very lucky to have a small but effective staff.
0: And, and when you say small, my understanding is there are essentially six people uh, Producers.
1: There's six producers, six associate producers, and a day of air team which is about five people. Okay. Uh, but not all those people are in on the weekend. Some of those people I just mentioned are on the road producing mm-hmm. more of our long-form pieces, our, our so-called signature segments. Okay.
0: You know, how would you describe the mission uh, of this broadcast and, and how it differs from a cable or a, a network news program?
1: Well, uh, the first mission is to continue the news on Saturdays and Sundays up until we were uh, launched uh, just about three years ago. Uh, PBS did not have news coverage on the weekends. So we take uh, that responsibility very seriously when the weekday show essentially hands over the keys to us on late Friday night, mm-hmm. and we hand them back on, on Monday morning. That's part one. And then part two is, um, we're, as you suggest, we're not cable news. Uh, that's a good thing, I think, in this case. We can spend, for example, uh, the passing of uh, Supreme Court Justice Scalia, we can spend two-thirds of our program on his death mm. and his impact on the court and on the country. And that's okay. Um, our viewers expect it. They want that kind of analysis. They want that kind of in-depth conversation and perspective. And we sort of have, have that freedom. That's definitely of
0: not a headline service that uh, you provide. No. It's we're an not, alternative. We're,
1: for example, in the election, we're not chasing the horse race. We're not keeping score. Um, we might mention the polls, but we'll do in-depth stories about an aspect of the election coming up. Um, and we can spend eight or ten minutes on that story and have it be okay.
0: Now, I found in the past that people, particularly, turn to the news hour in an election year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have uh, your work cut out for you to uh, to fulfill that. <laughs> yeah. But it seems like it's the one place where you know you can go without hours of stuff that you don't even really want to watch anymore, unless you are into, as you said the horse race.
1: Yeah. I mean, one one thing that we, uh, I wouldn't say struggle with, but certainly have a debate every Saturday and Sunday morning in our production meeting is what happened in the campaign today. And you can always find something. You can always say, candidate X said this today, candidate Y said this. That doesn't mean we have to cover it, doesn't mean it's news, doesn't mean it's worthy of analysis. There have been days in the recent hand, handful of weeks and recent months where uh, we just simply say, that's not news. That's just candidates talking, and we didn't cover it.
0: So take me inside the uh, oh boy. Your, your your morning production meeting. Uh, <laughs> how, how does how does that how does that all work?
1: Are you sure? It's pretty yes, scary really, in there. Well, well, you know we're. Uh, we have two. Our first one begins around nine thirty or so, um, and everybody who's on the day of air team and anyone who might be assigned to the program that weekend, uh, along with our anchor Hari or whoever might be subbing in for him. Uh, we go through the day's news, we sort of get a list of, uh, we compile a list of the sort of big stories that we know are out there, and then uh, people when they, on their way in or when they get in, they sort of, they read into the news and they f- they sort of decide what might be interesting. Unfortunately, we only have so much room. Mm-hmm. So the first pass at the meeting at 9.30 is, uh, here's how much time we have for the day of news, if it's not a big breaking news day, it's sort of a standard day, and everybody make a case for the stories that you think should be in the program. And we have a uh, respectful but robust discussion, mm-hmm. I guess is the best way to put okay. it. And then we simply just, you know, sort of whittle it down to the five or six stories we think are the most important. We then regroup about an hour and a half later to make sure we were right about those stories. And then we sort of launch into production. Yes, we were right about this one. This turns out to be a story that's a little older than we thought, so we're not going to do it. It turns out this story uh, is inaccurate and we're not going to do it, turns out this is a story that's bigger and we should devote more time to it. So it's sort of a two-step process. and that's,
0: then It sounds like sort of a non, non-stop process, though, in a way, because there's all of this uh, constantly reevaluating. evaluating what's, what's
1: happening. So there's the first one at 9.30, the next one a little bit after 11, and then throughout the day, things can obviously change and break and develop more uh, completely. And we often say, you know what, that story we really wanted to do out of China isn't nearly as important as this wildfire story in California. We've got to drop the China story and, and make, expand the wildfire story. That's sort of I want to
0: ask you about the, the, the challenge of, of balancing, you know, the need for timeliness with a story and, and ultimately what's really accurate mm-hmm. uh, and, and how that process works given any uh, story.
1: I'm glad you asked. I have a perfect example. Uh, about three weeks ago, the Prime Minister of Iraq said that Fallujah had been Recaptured, 100% recaptured from ISIS. That was a story that appeared on uh, CNN, I believe it was, and came across everybody's desk and phone, and you know how that goes, where everyone's alert is going off. But we looked into it, and it was happening, I think, around 5.15. So we were in the middle of our our 5 o'clock show. And we watched it, and we watched it, and we watched it, and AP wasn't reporting it, and Reuters wasn't reporting it. And then CNN doubled back and said, well, the prime minister is saying this, but our own sources on the ground, our own reporters are saying Fallujah is not even close to being recaptured. So we didn't report it, because there were n- there was absolutely no confirmation, even though it was sort of a, you could tell it was sort of becoming uh, a bigger story, or mm-hmm. at least if people were discussing it. And that's something that we have to be very, very careful about. We take very seriously, obviously, uh, reporting something, but we have to wait until it's absolutely proven to be true. Fast forward three weeks later, it's still not captured, Fallujah. It's still not recaptured from ISIS. So, have, a, have
0: you ever had examples where something was actually put on the air that that you had to retract at some point in the, after that?
1: Uh, I wouldn't say retract. No, I can't think or of correct, anything else. So Yeah, in some I mean, way. you know, we always have to be very careful with uh, sad things, death tolls, especially with with all the terror uh, events that have been happening around the world. So we're very careful about that. We uh, we go with the death toll we know. We say things like at least or up to. Um, because we don't want to be wrong about that, yeah. you know, it, it's especially in in an evolving story and a story that's Where those changed, things change. Those things changing too. almost while you're on the air sometimes, you have to be very, very careful. So we're, we try and be mindful of that. Yeah.
0: There's an awful lot of talk about bias Mm -hmm. uh, in journalism, and there are advocates for adversarial journalism Mm -hmm. as opposed to so-called unbiased journalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where do you and the the PBS NewsHour world come down in in that, and and how do you uh, particularly battle your own biases and your own internal opinions about things to present an accurate story that's unbiased?
1: Well, it's really hard. Um, you you want to make sure that, for example, in our tape pieces, if we do a story about you know, the environment, for example, we did a story very recently, or it's actually, we've completed a story that will air in a couple of weeks about the first climate refugees in the United States, 68 people off the coast of Louisiana who are being forced to move because of climate change oh. and, and other factors. The federal government is giving them money, moving their community 40 miles north. In every story, we have to say, what is this character's point of view? Where are they coming from? What is sort of their, for lack of a better term, their sort of personal history? What is their perspective? What is their potential bias? And then look at the story completely and say, is there another point of view that's missing from this? Is there someone who says, that person isn't right, and here are the facts that I have to back it up? And then we have to look at the facts that everyone's presenting and say well, those facts aren't necessarily justified. Here are federal government studies, sort of unbiased numbers that can prove that this person is right or wrong. It's basically, it's a math problem for us. Mm. Who are the people? What are they saying? What are they being backed up by? And what weight do we give that within each story? Same is true for day of interviews. If we do a breaking news story, we lean on reporters from other news organizations, certainly. But if we lean on an expert, What is this expert's perspective? Who are they? What is their history? Uh, You know, have they said things before that have been proven to be be untrue? Um, All those sort of factors are things that we think about. And, you know, if we're doing our jobs and we have enough people who are experienced enough, that analysis can happen rather quickly. But there's sort of a mental checklist you go down to make sure that you are presenting fact and unbiased. And in the case where you might have somebody who has a point of view, balance it with some with someone on the other side right. who has, if not the opposite point of view, someone with a different point. A little point-counterpoint in a way. That's right. And we generally don't do a lot of that. I mean, in our tape pieces, there there are some cases where, well, here's why this person thinks it's a good idea. This person from this other aspect of the story thinks it's a bad idea. Present them fairly and equally.
0: Right. But you're not uh, into advocacy
1: for, for a particular not. thing. Though. Absolutely not.
0: Absolutely not. can Scott, do you find that there are some stories that just don't get enough attention? Uh,
1: yeah, I, we actually have a story coming up where there are 34 million people in this country who live in rural communities who do not have high-speed Internet access. Now, that may seem, if, if not surprising, well, what's the big deal about having high-speed Internet access? You have Internet access, right? Uh, well, that's true, but high-speed Internet access in rural communities means uh, limited access to education, Educational materials, it means if you're a farmer, you can't run a farm as efficiently as you might normally be able to. Uh, It means economic opportunity. It means businesses aren't necessarily attracted to staying or or moving to your community. Mm -hmm. So this digital divide that exists in the United States is uh, a very pressing issue, especially for rural communities, and the story we have coming up is about how Rural communities, in this case in Western Massachusetts and in Minnesota, are banding together to create fiber networks for themselves because, Mm -hmm. understandably, to some extent, larger internet providers, it's not really necessarily cost-efficient or cost-effective for them to wire up limited uh, number of households. So what do they do? Local communities band together in an effort to bring high-speed internet to their residents so they can have things like, like, as I said, access to education. Um, sure. Farmers who who run equipment based on GPS and Wi-Fi and can get the latest pricing uh, information, and as I said before, businesses, small businesses, in order to stay competitive, you have to have access to information quickly and without high-speed internet access, you can't. So it it affects everything in these communities, from education to economy. Um, Just I think to that's, be a part of the modern world, you that's have exactly to have right. This that's connection. exactly right. It is. It is. You know, uh, I think the FCC considers it a. Uh, uh, a utility, but what does that mean? It means sort of a basic need, and a lot of people don't have this basic need. Wasn't
0: there an FCC rule uh, originally with telephones though that they had to provide service for rural areas, and yeah. that, that doesn't carry over uh, with with
1: this? No, and and uh, not officially. Uh, it's my understanding. Please fact check me on that. Um, that's the fight that's happening, that it's just as important as electricity and, uh, you know, a roof over your head and food and so all those things. Not, not that a roof over your head is guaranteed, nor is food, but it's one of those basic necessities that in order to really function in modern society, especially the economy and the educational aspect, uh, you need Internet access. You need high-speed Internet access, and a lot of people don't have it. It's sort of surprising in this country. Interesting.
0: You, you, you talked about uh, Hari. He I think for the viewers is the most visible connection of PBS NewsHour weekend with the NewsHour because we yep. see him. Uh, tell us about what- He's that everywhere, re- right? He's, he's everywhere. Now, he's he's in yeah. London. He's SciTech now. Yeah. He's everywhere. Uh, what is that like uh, for you to work with him on such a constant basis? You must have a great relationship.
1: He's great. Uh, yeah. Him. I mean, uh, Hari is, uh, is sort of epitomizes what it means to be an anchor. Um, He can handle a dynamic, changing, breaking news situation with ease and comfort, even though I don't know how he does it because I know it's not easy or comfortable, but he makes it seem so. He works very hard at that. He is incredible at the day of interview. Um, Hari, we're doing an interview about uh, Venezuela. Got it. No problem. Hari, we're doing an interview about ISIS in Syria. Got it. Hari, we're doing an interview about ISIS in uh, Iraq. (laughs) Totally got it. He's just, he's well-versed on many, many subjects, and he's an incredibly quick study. So mm-hmm. if he's even if he's not well-versed, he can become well-versed. What I always find amazing about Hari is he he lives in two worlds, the weekday show and our show, and our show, because it's a half an hour, we can't devote a nearly as much time to, for example, a day of interview that as the weekday show can. But, so shortening that interview, for example, if we do a, an interview this weekend about Venezuela and the crisis happening there and how... People are lining up for food and doing all sorts of uh, things to get by. How do you boil all that down into three minutes or three mm-hmm. and a half minutes, which is about the length of our interview? He can do that as well as he can do a seven or eight minute interview, and that's really quite a skill to have. And,
0: and you have a, a bench of other anchors, Allison Stewart, mm-hmm. we see on the NewsHour have yeah, Megan Thompson, Thompson well, sure. Megan Thompson. Yeah. And uh, Jeff Greenfield, uh, you have doing a lot of uh, political reporting. Yeah. I, I, very familiar with his work over the years as yeah, well.
1: Yeah. Um, just to get back to your. Allison and I worked together on Need to Know. Okay. She's. Fantastic! I think incredibly high level. She's she's a a good friend and colleague. She brings something different. You know, she has a a very good sense of sort of pop culture and trend, uh, but she's also really good at the day of interview and breaking news. She you know her experience back you know a while back at MTV is where many people knew her from. She brings a, a, a sort of a different approach to it, but equally as as informative and entertaining as Hari. Uh, Megan Thompson, who is a correspondent and and substitute anchor and reporter, and oh by the way she shoots Jeez. she shoots and produces and edits also, yeah, she does all those kind sorts of, of things amazing. yeah, she's incredible and Jeff Greenfield, who has covered uh, every political season and every presidential election as far back as <laughs> i don't know how how far back you'd be <laughs> willing to admit. <laughs> But he brings a perspective uh, that really nobody else does. His sense of, you know, he's a historian, but he's also a reporter. His sense of history and how history plays a role in informing what happens today yeah. is sort of is invaluable, and you'll be seeing a lot of him on our program in the coming months.
0: I'm very fond of his sense of humor also, which yeah. always, always always comes through in yeah. his reporting. Yeah. What do you hear from the audience, and who is the PBS NewsHour weekend audience?
1: Uh, Oh, we hear mostly good things. Uh Um, I would say our audience, you know, won't surprise you to learn they're incredibly smart. Uh, They pay attention to, I would say, literally every word we say, and we get notes uh, occasionally like, you know, sure you meant... fact checkers out there? Yeah, they are fact checkers, and you know what? We appreciate that, because, you know, occasionally we could be more clear about something. Uh, A couple extra words sometimes don't hurt, and sometimes if if we, I wouldn't say take a shortcut, that's not exactly right, but... We could be more clear about some things, and we hear about it. We appreciate it. They're smart, you know. They pay attention. They don't just watch us. They watch a lot of other things too. And we we uh, we serve them, so we have to get it right, and we take that very seriously.
0: I was thinking, even though there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of procedural aspects to what you do, that mm-hmm. every day is sort of a different day, yeah, depending on on what's happening. That's right. In the world, what's that? Is is there a typical day for you?
1: Well, we like to, uh, I would say, joke around the office that we everybody has two jobs. There's the Wednesday to Friday job, okay. where we sort of plan and think about our long-term stories. We look at the calendar. We look a month or six months ahead uh, and say, what are we going to do this year? For example, uh, on 9-11, that's the 15th anniversary of September 11th. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do that's different? That's part one. The second part of the job is day of, Saturday, Sunday, and it's it's two completely different mindsets. So. Uh, I would think the energy sort of the amp, energy amps up. definitely gets ratcheted up a little bit. It's a different skill set. It's quicker writing. If you see one thing on our television program or, or online, you sort of have to assume that seven or eight people have touched it. Mm-hmm. For example, in the tease to our program, which is only about 30 seconds long, somebody's written it. Somebody's fact-checked it. Someone's gotten the video. Somebody's edited it. That's four people right there. Graphics, five people. Music, six people. So. Everything goes through a process here, um, which for, for most time, most people, it's sort of this seamless and you don't even think about it, but if you do stop to think about it, six or seven or eight people touch every element of the show. And if they don't, that's not good, because it means we've <laughs> maybe forgotten something yes. or not gotten something yeah. right. So you, we just have to m- make sure you that need that happens. all of
0: those uh, those contributions needed right. by everybody. That's right, that's right. Scott, with so much changing at work, what's the carryover when you go home?
1: Uh, Well, I think at work you sort of have to be flexible because the news breaks and there's nothing you can do about it. So you have to, what you thought you were going to do five minutes ago is now out the window and you're doing something completely different. At home, I'm probably the exact opposite of that. I'm a little more... Here's what we're doing, and we're sticking to the plan. More control in the home. Uh, yeah, control is sort of an illusion, but I like to try <laughs> at least maintain that illusion and make myself feel better that I'm actually in control of something. And, and, and where do the plans take you? What do you like to do? Uh, you mean at home? Yeah. Uh, if it involves sitting on a beach, I'm good with that. Okay. I um, like to go for a run, very sort of solitary, clear my head get out of the uh, 24-hour news cycle if I can, That's what, that sort of thing. That's
0: what I would think it would be difficult to turn off the news cycle for someone who it, does what you do.
1: It, it, it really is increasingly difficult, and I would say like in the last two or three or four years, you know, with the explosion of everything happening on your phone and you having your phone with you at all times, I've actually had to consciously put my phone in another room when I'm at home sometimes just so I can unplug. Good idea. Yeah. But go for a run. That's what I recommend. A nice, long run.
0: So how did this all start for you? How did you get involved in the world of media and broadcast journalism? And
1: How uh, did you land here at uh, WNET? How far and, back do you want me to go? Tonight? Well, you know, as far back as you can remember. 150 years ago, I was an intern at Larry King Live at CNN. Okay. And um, I didn't really, you know, when I was in college, I was a junior in college, and I thought you know, it might be fun. And I just sort of fell in love with the whole idea of what you thought was happening at 9 o'clock in the morning was completely different than what made air at 9 o'clock at night. And the sort of dynamic energy that happened throughout the day and the guests and the people that came in, I thought, I could probably do this. Let's see what happened. Uh, From there, I finished college, much to my parents' happiness, (laughs) and then spent uh, five or six years working for Phil Donahue. And that's really where you sort of you sort of uh, earn your stripes because that is a five day a week live hour, sometimes six shows a week, live hour of television where you sort of never know what's going to happen. Mm. And that show it really taught me how to plan and have a plan and then deviate from the plan when you need when and if you need to. Mm. A few other jobs in between there, but my first job here at WNT was a little program called That Money Show. That Money Show, which was uh, I think in 1999 nine two thousand financial personal financial personal magazine, financial news magazine and that was a little bit of a sort of a day of show and a little bit of a pre uh, predetermined sort of long form pieces is sort of a precursor to what we're doing now on pbs news our weekend uh, anchor was betsy kretnik who's still to this day an incredible person and so that was that sort of turned got me into the public television world and then mm. I spent some time after September 11th was my introduction to Bill Moyers and that turned into now with Bill Moyers that turned into a bunch of programs including Exposé where I spent 3 years working on really a in long de- form long form in-depth investigations a documentary series about journalists who do investigations and that was a very serious program but you really learned a lot about first of all how serious uh, these journalists are how their approach to facts and really getting it right, and also how to make something very visual. Because sometimes investigations into say, the way a government behaves or the way they were supposed to implement a program, visually not so exciting. And how to make it sort of visually exciting. That was a really good lesson for me. Those those three or four years I spent working on that show. What are the biggest joys about this work for you? Well, at the end of the day, you feel like you made something. You say, look. There's a half an hour of television that I had. A, I had a hand finishing in. the hat, like Stephen Yeah, Saturday. That's right. You feel like, wow, I actually did something, and and maybe I informed some people, and and maybe at the end of the day, that story helped some people. Um, but it provides a different perspective on a story that's been out there. If I can do one or two of those things every time we make a show, I think everybody, including anyone on our staff, sort of feels pretty good about themselves. And and the challenges, and and what's what's ahead. Well, the challenge is always, you know, in public television, always resources, how to make the most of of what you're given to work with. I think staffing-wise, as we discussed earlier, we have a very good staff. That's a good thing. You'd always like a little bit more ability to go to, you know, farther-flung places, spend a little bit more time on that sort of thing. But, you know, there's not much you can do about that. Uh, Would would
0: you like to be responsible for an hour
1: every Saturday and Sunday? I don't know if my attention span would... (laughs) That's just a personal thing no, no, Half half no. hour seems right for me. okay,
0: okay, but uh, I was just wondering if there, you know people talk about the news hour and it's a half hour and it's, sometimes it gets a little crazy when you no, talk it's so about it's funny that. because when
1: we launched we talked about the name uh, you know well, but it's only a half an hour. I don't think anybody minds. No, 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 I don't think anybody minds no cares. yeah no cares. I think it again for my for my attention span it's perfect. okay.
0: Scott, thanks so much for being with us. Indeed, Uh, my pleasure. This has really been a lot of fun, and we look forward to the election coverage and all of the breaking news and the non-breaking news uh, that we see on PBS NewsHour weekend. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. Every Saturday and Sunday on most PBS stations. And please be with us again soon for our next podcast, and you can share your thoughts with us at upnext at WNET.org. WNET Up Next is a production of the Design and On-Air Promotion Department of WNET New York. I'm Tom Stewart.